I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, my guest is Megan Hatcher-Mays. Megan is the Director of Democracy Policy at Indivisible, and she's here to discuss the nomination of Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. It's an historic moment in this country's history, and if confirmed, Katanji Brown-Jackson would be the first Black woman ever to sit on the Supreme Court. In this episode, we talk about everything, including Jackson's record as a federal judge, the conservative backlash to her nomination, and why Jackson has been embraced by all factions of the Democratic Party, from progressives to moderates. This is history in the making, and I'm so excited to have this conversation. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Megan Hatcher-Mays. Megan Hatcher-Mays, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I was thinking that this is your third time on the electorate, uh-huh. <laughs> and I feel like there should be a prize, you know, yeah. for that milestone. <laughs> yeah, I would take candy. I, I don't have anything um, for you, though. <laughs> but oh, I mean, you know, okay. just, you know, it's open for debate whether there should be a prize yeah. and what it should be. But anyway, welcome again. And we are talking about Katanji Brown Jackson. You mm-hmm. know, this is a huge deal, her nomination. How do you feel? I feel great. This is really, really exciting. Um, Over the course of my career, this is the very first time I'm working on a Supreme Court nomination where I want the person to be confirmed. Uh, In the past, I've only ever worked to try to block people from being (laughs) confirmed. So this is like a fun change of pace um, for me. And it's not just any nominee. It's this great nominee, Katanji Brown-Jackson. She's a fantastic uh, person. She's eminently qualified lawyer and judge. Um, former public defender, and she's going to be great. And just the historic nature of her nomination, the fact that there has never been a Black woman on the Supreme Court in its 220 plus year history. I mean, obviously, that's horrible that it took this long, but um, really can't think of anybody better than Katanji Brown-Jackson to to join the court, despite the, the mess that it's in, but she is, she's great. And she's going to be a great addition uh, to the bench. So it's just like exciting and kind of a weird uh, emotional space to be in to actually be excited about a Supreme Court nomination. No, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge moment. If they're going to be rallies and, you know, all around mm-hmm. the country, particularly in DC, Aaron, I was just tweeting about this, how I wish I could, could be there for some of these, these rallies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe this is magical thinking, but somehow I think just her presence, you know, of course, the Supreme Court is kind of a mess right now. But mm-hmm. I think her presence, I'm hoping that it will kind of shape it in a positive direction, even if it's still imbalanced. Yeah, well, I mean, representation isn't everything, but it is something. And the fact that, um, you know, a lot of times when uh, justices write dissents, they're writing those dissents to try to influence law students, right? Um, uh, it worked, like Scalia used to say that all the time. That's why he wrote such fiery dissents is that he wanted law students to read it and be like, oh, I should be a conservative. Um, so even though she will likely, I mean, given the makeup of the court, be in a dissent probably a lot of the time, the fact that she's writing those dissents at all, I think will be really critically important to shaping kind of the future of the profession. So regardless of the severe kind of imbalance of the Supreme Court at the moment, her presence there will make a huge difference. I I don't know if that means she'll necessarily win over the Brett Kavanaugh's of the world. I don't know that I could put those expectations on her, but um, her presence there, her, the writing that she will do on the Supreme Court, the shaping of the law that she'll do, whether she's in the majority or not, will just be a huge, huge deal for the legal profession, which um, really could use uh, her perspective, I think. I mean, it's not just that she's, a Black woman. There's never been a public defender on the Supreme Court ever in its history. So as a result, we get a lot of uh, law created by former prosecutors, which, as you can imagine, is not always 
uh, that great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so her presence there will be a big shift, and I think, in how the court thinks of criminal justice cases, even if she's she finds herself in the dissent a lot of the time. Right. I hadn't thought about that. Right. You're kind of yeah. leaving a history, you know, through your descent and, and how mm-hmm. that shapes the future justices. The, I think the last time we talked, we were talking about Justice Breyer and mm-hmm. his resistance to retire. Right. He was yeah. trying to attract it to kind of the ceremony of it. all. I'm not really sure what he said. You know, and, you know, part of me didn't think that this would this would happen. Right. Yeah. But, you know, thankfully it did. He, you know, he did retire or he hasn't retired yet, but he will. He's willing to. Let's hope you know, when it happens, he actually does. <laughs> doesn't change his mind. But, you know, before Jackson was chosen, there were a few other considerations on the table. There was Leandra Kruger, mm-hmm. right, I think. And then there was Michelle Childs or J. Mm-hmm. Michelle Childs, rather. You know, why do you think in the end Biden chose chose Jackson? It's a, it's a good question. You know, I think um, I, I just think she's such a, a compelling person. She's such a great person, which is not to say Leandra Kruger is not a compelling and interesting person. And J. Michelle Childs, obviously, you know, is, is great, too. And J. Michelle Childs had the support of Lindsey Graham because she was from South Carolina. So that would have, (laughs) I don't know, would have been a kind of an interesting (laughs) choice. Um, But, but I think ultimately the, I think her background, her experience just is so unique for the court. I mean, yes, she went to Harvard. Many, if not most of the justices also went to Harvard. Sure. We could use a lot more educational diversity on the, on the court, but I just think that the fact that she was a public defender, the fact that her story is so compelling, the fact that she's just like a great person, everybody loves her. She's been confirmed by the Senate on a bipartisan basis three times already um, for different jobs, including her current one on the D.C. Circuit. And so it just seemed like a slam dunk. And I think every video that you see of her, you can just see like she's just a really phenomenal human being. Again, not to say that the other shortlisters are not also phenomenal human beings, but um, I think given her experience and her record of being confirmed really kind of put her over the top. Right. You hit on something. I mean, I think the moment she was chosen, one thing that I realized about her record and her background is how unimpeachable her record was, mm-hmm. right? You know, no one's had anything to say. Like even Paul Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this sort of um technically related, I think Paul I Ryan is like married, but still, still, even uh there's no reason why a Republican should vote against her. And you're totally right. They haven't found anything substantive Republicans, that is, haven't haven't found anything substantive to kind of knock her on. They're trying to create, I think, a lot of straw men about her candidacy. So something that we've been hearing a lot is, uh, well, before she was even nominated, there was a lot of really kind of horrific uh, racist and sexist attacks against the nominee because, you know, Joe Biden had said he wanted to nominate a black woman before Katanji Brown was even, Katanji Brown Jackson was even announced as the nominee. Republicans were out here saying, oh, it's affirmative action and it's it's racist against white people for Joe Biden to say. I mean, we didn't even know who she was yet and they were already kind of trotting out a lot of racist tropes. And then after she was announced, they realized, wow, we really don't have anything to go after on the substance. So instead they're trying to create a couple of straw men. One is Next week when her confirmation hearings start, very likely they'll focus on the fact, Republicans will focus on the fact that she was a public defender as a way to try to paint Joe Biden as being soft on crime so they can bring up democratically run cities or overrun with crime or whatever dumb thing that they're complaining about. Um, And they'll probably bring up the fact, they've already tried to do this, that she has the support of left-leaning judicial groups, which therefore makes her, I don't know, somehow beholden to leftist interests or something like that it's both not true (laughs) and also projection because their own supreme court candidates were in fact (laughs) 
hand selected yeah. by conservative dark money groups to serve on the Supreme Court. And they spent tens of millions of dollars to get Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch confirmed. And now somehow, you know, this is Katanji Brown Jackson's problem. So that's just kind of what to, to look for. But you'll note that they're having to invent stuff to complain about because there's nothing really in her record to complain about. She's she's great. She's a great judge. She hardly ever gets reversed, in fact. Yeah. You know, that's it's really interesting that you bring up the period before she was nominated when Joe Biden very clearly said that he wanted to nominate a black woman. We didn't know who that would be, but we knew that it was going to be a black woman. And you're right. There was lots of criticism, lots of, you know, it wasn't racially tinged, it was just racist. Exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, comments about who this person was that no one knew about. You know, and I've been thinking about that. And you're right. She has been embraced by everyone on the Democratic side, you know, progressives, mm-hmm. you know, moderates, everyone. Right. But, I, you know, sometimes I think it's less interesting to talk about how conservatives react in this moment <laughs> just because they're kind of unserious. You know, they're transparent mm-hmm. and they're predictable. You know, Tucker Carlson has been predictably clownish about this. Right. <laughs> I mean, we can talk about that, but we kind of understand why that's happening and where it's going. But what I think is more interesting is how she's been embraced on the democratic side, right. By both progressives and, you know, more moderate Democrats, Mm -hmm. because I mean, you know, there was one moment where a lot of progressive people were saying, you know, Oh, you know, who is this person? Who is this black person? Is that really important? You know, that we choose a black woman. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that it's the right person. And I don't know how I feel about that. I know that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gave an interview a few weeks before Jackson was chosen, saying that she hoped that the person had the right worldview. Why do you think that this pick satisfied progressives? And what does that mean, having the right worldview? Yes, it's a good question. I, I don't totally know what AOC meant by that. I think that what we've got now is a court that's controlled by conservatives who, uh, again, really are operating to deliver wins to Republicans. Like they, they are trying to get to judicial decisions that deliver partisan wins um, so that Republicans can like maintain control over the government despite having like minority support. That's what's happening at the Supreme Court right now. To have somebody who not only like wants to follow the law and the constitution, that the bar is on the floor, you know? <laughs> like exactly. That in and of yeah. itself is like a breath of fresh air. But the fact, again, I just like to bring this up again, like the fact that she was a former public defender, like, and the fact that no one, no public defender has ever served as a justice on the Supreme Court, that point of view is severely, severely lacking. And I think as far as like worldview is concerned, right now, there's like a very clear path. If you, if you want to, if anyone listening wants to become a Supreme Court justice, the easiest way to do that is to go to a top five law school, you know, clerk for a federal judge, become a U.S. attorney go and work for the fanciest law firm that you can find and then become a judge and then you become a Supreme Court justice. But being a prosecutor is like, has been up to this point, um, like a really critical part of that path. And it's led to a lot of really bad outcomes for juvenile offenders, for folks re-entering society, for death penalty cases. It's been terrible. And it's because this lack of diversity of worldview on the Supreme Court, not just lack of racial diversity, but a lack of professional diversity. And so that's what Katanji Brown Jackson represents. She won over progressives and she won over moderates. And I think she might, very possible that she'll win over Republicans too, because she's fair, because every sort of perspective deserves to be represented on, on like the most important court in the country. And I think that's what she represents. And so I think that's why she was able to win folks over so quickly. That makes total sense, actually. You know, you you explained what the worldview comment or, you know, that 
that opinion meant better than anyone I've heard so far. <laughs> no, it does. It totally makes sense. You know, and we can talk about Tucker Carlson and the Republican reaction if you want. Um, I mean, I'm more interested. I mean, we can't. I mean, I'm more interested in, in, you know, like what their aim is and what their audience is, because who their audience is, rather, because, you know, she will probably be confirmed. So why are they putting out these little breadcrumbs of racism? Yeah. For no reason, seemingly. Yeah. So I don't think the reason is because they want to tank the nomination. In fact, what Katandi Brown Jackson's been doing over the last week, two weeks or so, has been going around taking courtesy meetings with every single senator. So first she met with all the senators on the Judiciary Committee, and now she's meeting with, with everybody in the Senate. And every single readout that we've seen has been incredibly positive. And that's not to say that every that any Republican or every Republican is going to vote to confirm her, but we haven't seen the kind of negativity that we saw before her name was announced as being the nominee, which was, it got really vile and pretty racist before we even knew who she was, like I was saying. But now the readouts have been pretty positive, which leads me to believe that it's not so much that Republicans want to tank her nomination. So they want to say nice things about it if, for political reasons um, after they meet with her. But what they want to do, what especially the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee want to do, is to put on a big performance about how Joe Biden is a failure. And so Katandi Brown-Jackson is just like a proxy for that argument. And so that's why I think they're going to focus a lot on the fact that she was a former public defender. They're going to try to bring up old cases and try to paint her as being soft on crime, which then allows them to paint Joe Biden as being soft on crime. Is that true? No, of course not. But you've got a lot of people on the Judiciary Committee who are interested in running for president in 2024. So it's helpful for those purposes. So on that committee, we have uh, Ted Cruz, perennial failed presidential candidate, <laughs> and, and Josh Hawley, who is about to become the next Ted Cruz, the next perennial failed presidential candidate. And so those guys really want to be able to say, I fought this soft on crime, leftist, Marxist, CRT, blah, 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 blah. And it's all nonsense, and they know it. But at least that way, they're laying the foundation for this broader argument about Democrats and defund the police and CRT. It's not really about Katanji Brown Jackson at all. And I don't think that they actually want her to fail or they don't want her nomination to fail because I know this is hard to believe, (laughs) but (laughs) even Republicans don't want to be seen as the party who tanked the very first black woman ever to serve on the Supreme Court. And I know they're very racist and they don't care whether she's on the Supreme Court or not but they don't want to be blamed for her not being confirmed to the court. So instead, I think they want to do this other thing where they're creating this like broader argument about how Democrats love crime by using her nomination as the vehicle to do that. Um, Tucker Carlson is just a white supremacist. (laughs) That's why he's doing it. (laughs) Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, we can go into that, but then we get off the Supreme Court. I'm just curious as to like, you know, how, you know, that that standard that they have, which I don't completely understand. They don't want to take the first Black woman on the Supreme Court. They don't, don't want to take her nomination, you know, but that doesn't extend past the Supreme Court. It I mean, does I'm not. Because sure, I'm sure that <laughs> they would right. want, you know, Kamala Harris, if she were to run for president, I'm sure they'd want her to fail. Correct. You know? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, I want, it doesn't even extend to other uh, Biden nominees. But he's had a lot of really diverse nominees who have met with nonsensical obstruction by Republicans. They're not even, you know, Pat Toomey and other Republicans aren't even showing up to the banking committee. They're denying Democrats a quorum to to block highly qualified, very diverse nominees from being confirmed. So it doesn't extend past the Supreme Court. It doesn't, obviously not for electoral reasons, but it doesn't even extend to other nominees whose nominations are currently being blocked, like as we speak. 
but but it's because the Supreme Court is like the one thing that happens in the Senate that people pay attention to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Outside of DC, that it's. <laughs> yeah, those Republicans are endlessly enigmatic. This is the word I want. <laughs> endlessly conf- confusing. And yet, you know, also uh, yeah. a lot of other. You know. <laughs> you know, so how does. I feel odd comparing her to, to Amy Coney Barrett. You know, she was held up as kind of a <laughs> historical example. But, you know, how, how does her background compare? Right. And I, I'm just thinking back to those hearings. I remember Amy Coney Barrett very, very you know, infamously refusing to answer some really important questions during her hearing, like about abortion, particularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just 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 starting with her background. You know, how do they compare? Not a fair yeah, comparison. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, they compare. They're not they're not really comparable because um, unlike Amy Coney Barrett, you know, Katanji Brown Jackson is highly qualified for the job. And Amy Coney Barrett n- never was not to diss professors, but, you know, she uh, she didn't really she hadn't really. Amy Coney Barrett, that is, had just served as a professor for many, many years at Notre Dame and hadn't really served very long as a judge. Really felt like, you know, Trump had just sort of cynically picked her because Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died and she was a woman. So it was like kind of a one-for-one trade, I think, in his mind. I mean, I know that's offensive, but I think that's how he thought about it. I think that's how Trump thought about it. And she kind of came to those hearings. She didn't even really have to try that hard. She knew she wasn't going to get difficult questions and she knew there wasn't any like real concerned that she wouldn't be confirmed despite her lack of experience. And so, you know, she showed up to the hearing with a blank notepad and um, you're right. She didn't (laughs) answer a lot of questions about, um, you know, constitutional rights. Unlike by the way, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, when she was asked at her confirmation hearing in the nineties, you know, her stance on abortion, she gave a very full throated defense of Roe versus Wade. And so for subsequent nominees to not answer that question at all is actually pretty offensive, especially we find ourselves now on the cusp of having Roe versus Wade either gutted significantly or straight up overturned later this year. Whereas we have Gitanji Brown-Jackson, who's been a judge for years. She's got great litigation experience, unlike Amy Coney Barrett. Also, Gitanji Brown-Jackson never signed (laughs) a full-page newspaper ad comparing abortion to murder, unlike Amy Coney Barrett. Who did? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that's, um, one so that's a big difference. I, I also expect her to come prepared. I think she's going to get a lot tougher questions than Amy Coney Barrett did. I think, you know, Ben Sass, I think it was, was asking Amy Coney Barrett, oh, do you play piano? Do you drive your kids to soccer practice? You know, stuff like that. So I don't think she's going to have an easy time of it. I think you and I know this well. It's kind of ingrained that, you know, Black women always have to be twice, twice as good. And I think that we're going to see that play out during this confirmation hearing next week that she's going to have a lot of binders. She's going to be really well prepared. She's going to get a lot of tough questions. And I expect her to handle it really well because she's highly, highly qualified. And I don't think she'll be sitting there with nothing but a blank (laughs) notepad in front of her. No, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that was the biggest comparison I was thinking of. Like, you know, the fact that she will most likely be confirmed. There was no way that she would show up and not answer questions like we just don't have that luxury mm-hmm. of giving non-answers <laughs> yep that's right and you know they, they would not have let that go i mean i know that we're just not gonna say democrats gave amy coney barrett an easy time but it was just you know kind of a slap in the face it was like the election was literally going on while this was happening people were voting while um amy coney barrett was being confirmed <laughs> it's like she didn't even really take it seriously she just was sort of like no oh, this is a you know i don't really need to worry about this this is right. fine. I'll be confirmed. I don't really need to st- study or prepare. This is just a formality. Yeah, it's an insult to the to the institution. I mean, yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, I mean, I think even not to, you know, maybe the dead horse, but I think even Brett Kavanaugh actually came more prepared, right? Didn't he? Yes, he did. Believe it or not, he, he did. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know if any of us were prepared for him. And here we, here we are <laughs> with him <laughs> serving on the bench for life. So, um, but yeah. yes, he at least had, you know, notes and stuff in front of him. So <laughs> at the very good. least, yeah. Yeah. So back to Katanji Brown Jackson, yes. um, her uncle, it's well known by now that her uncle was convicted of a low level drug offense when he was a senior in high school no. mm-hmm. and he was sentenced to life in prison. And she's been very open about that. You know, he was caught up in the whole three strikes law, right? Mm-hmm. When, when that was happening. And, you know, just thinking about that, just saying it aloud, how draconian that is. And just thinking of someone in high school being told that because of this, this one thing you did, the rest of your life is gone, Right. Mm-hmm. You know, he received clemency under Obama after serving three decades, and that must have shaped her judicial philosophy. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I, I mean, definitely. I think, you know, one of my biggest critiques of the Supreme Court is that it's very easy for them to kind of, um, the conservative majority, I should I should clarify, it's really easy for them to issue decisions or, you know, issue rulings that harm people, really hurt people, because the Supreme Court and the people that support the conservative justices on the Supreme Court are insulated from their own decision-making, right? Like if, if the Supreme Court gets rid of abortion, Republicans aren't going to stop taking their loved ones or their mistresses or wives to have abortions if, if they want. Like they're protected, right, from these sort of bad decisions. And the war on drugs and, you know, really harsh three strikes laws, really harsh criminal penalties don't affect any of these folks. So it's really easy them to just like sleep at night despite the fact that they've harmed people and their rulings hurt people like so going back to worldview the fact that there will be somebody on the court who was personally affected (laughs) by by these types of policies and by the supreme court's willingness to kind of allow states to continue and with these really harsh punishments over the course of many years even like having unconstitutional conditions in state jails and federal prisons the, the fact that there will be somebody on the court who is affected and who knows people personally who have been affected by our legal system is a huge thing, big thing that uh, you know you don't typically get from your ivory tower types that we have on the court at the moment, especially not on the conservative side. So that that will make a huge huge difference to the way, maybe not so much the way that the court rules with this constellation with this majority. But it will make a difference about how, what those dissents might look like, what those opinions might look like, given that we now have the perspective of somebody who has been like personally affected by the criminal justice system. So it's big. It's, it's um, exciting is not the right word, but I'm really just looking forward to and inspired by the possibilities that kind of come along with her yeah. confirmation. Are you familiar with, you know, some of her more notable rulings from the past thus far i mean i was looking at her record and just a few cases came up there seems to be a level of empathy on display that would be you know probably surprising from someone like you know brett kavanaugh Mm -hmm. um i don't know can you think of any of her past rulings the legal defense fund put out a really good resource today that i just haven't had the chance to go through and same with alliance for justice they have a good one also but it is true that she's an empathetic judge and that matters that's really important i mean i think um <sighs> especially given the like this severe lack of empathy among right. the conservative <laughs> justices yeah um and i think we've seen a lot of that a lot more vocal and more forceful 
language from the liberal justices and maybe not so much from Stephen Breyer, who really, I think, felt like the institution was sort of immune from criticism. But even Sonia Sotomayor is fed up. And you can tell based on the questions that she's asking during oral arguments and in the dissents that she's been issuing. I mean, during the Mississippi abortion ban case, the oral arguments were back in December. And she said, will this court survive the stench if they overturn Roe v. Wade? I mean, that's Wow. That's real that's pretty spicy for a yeah. Supreme Court justice. <laughs> so for her to get a new colleague who I think will bring that same level of empathy to the proceedings, I think will make a big difference. I don't know that it will win over the conservatives who have been waiting their whole lives to gut Roe versus Wade. But at least when people read dissents in certain cases, they'll know that there are people who are still fighting for them from the bench. Yeah. I mean, if anyone ever uses the word stench in reference to something <laughs> that you've done. It's a good sign that you haven't done a great job, <laughs> right? I, yes, I, right? I don't think anyone's ever said that about me, not to my face at least, hopefully. Yeah, I will hope to avoid ever being <laughs> accused of bringing stench to the proceedings. <laughs> exactly. We've talked a bit about the history of the Supreme Court. And, you know, I think that this is probably one of the most unbalanced moments in its mm-hmm. history that we have right now. So there, there, it, it has been more balanced in the past, yet we're in this place right now, right? Where Roe v. Wade could be possibly mm-hmm. overturned. How do you think that Jackson will rule in a way that's different from her Democratic counterparts? Do you know what I mean from Breyer? Do you think she'll shape it even differently from, from the way they have? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that their judicial philosophies are so different. You know, she, she used to clerk for him after she left law school, actually. Um, And so I'm sure that they have a lot in common. But what I will be interested to see is that Breyer just had a lot of faith in the Supreme Court as an institution, as as a nonpartisan, apolitical body. And I don't know, obviously, have no idea how Ketanji Brown Jackson feels about any of that. But I feel like Stephen Breyer really had his head in the sand about the threats facing the Supreme Court. Um, There's not so much any one individual justice can do to change the structural problems facing the court. But what I'm hoping is that Ketanji Brown-Jackson at least is going into this, realizing the problems facing this institution and how she, her presence there might make a difference because ultimately, you know, Stephen Breyer just didn't get it. Just didn't understand. You know, he wrote a whole book about that just showed how much he didn't understand (laughs) about how politicized the court um, had become. And I think you see it a lot with the, you know, the Sonia Sotomayor comments about surviving this tension, Roe versus Wade. It's like, this court has problems. And even the normally very um, reserved Supreme Court justices are calling it out in, in real time. We haven't seen that much um, over over history, but it'll just be interesting to see kind of how Ketanji Brown-Jackson fits in there and whether she kind of carries on Breyer's legacy of being a little, uh, you know, ignorance is bliss or <laughs> yeah i mean of course i <laughs> don't think she, yeah i mean of course she wouldn't i think you know i i was thinking about you know i asked you before about any of her rulings and i'm not really qualified to really speak to these in in any detail but i remember there was one which you may recall something about someone in the trump administration was called to testify and the white house said you know like oh he doesn't he, he doesn't need to testify right he's you know immune to having to testify mm-hmm. and in her ruling she said something like presidents aren't king do you remember that moment mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So she she definitely didn't have her head in the sand there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because you know the Trump stuff is not going to go away <laughs> anytime soon. Right. Right. And it's very um, interesting, especially with the January sixth committee. You know, subpoenaing people and documents and things like that, uh, especially given what we now know about Clarence Thomas and his wife being the January sixth uh, insurrection. Very awkward. Um, but yeah, I think that she's somebody who's she's a straight shooter. I think you see that in in her writings that she just like isn't a partisan actor in the same way that the conservatives on the court are a lot of the time, you know, where their whole goal is to kind of deliver partisan wins to Republicans. That's really not the goal of Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan and Stephen Breyer, right? At the moment, I doubt it will be a goal of Ketanji Brown Jackson. It's about delivering justice, interpreting the constitution, interpreting the law. And I think Stephen Breyer understood that to an extent, but I don't think he understood how the institution that he was a part of was undermining little d democratic goals. Right, right. right. I think last time we talked, we were talking about about expanding the Supreme Court, or at the very least, fixing it in the short term. We're further away from that, from, you know, the last time we had a conversation, just FYI. I think we are, aren't we? Well, I think that we've got a lot more support in the House now than we did. The Congressional Progressive Caucus endorsed the bill um, last month, which is a big step forward, hoping to get more and more co-sponsors on that bill on the House side. There are a few more Senate co-sponsors. So Elizabeth Warren came out in favor. Tina Smith is now on the bill, along with Ed Markey, who introduced it. Is it going to pass this year? I don't think so. But it should, because (laughs) the Supreme Court is sort of like a critical kind of cog in the wheel of our democracy. And right now it is jammed. It's not working. The Supreme Court is actively trying to undermine our democracy. And so Democrats have this mistaken belief that these things will sort themselves out, that, you know, we'll eventually get a chance to regain control of the Supreme Court, but it's just unlikely to occur. And in the meantime, so much damage is going to be wrought. And it's it's about Roe versus Wade, of course, it's about guns, it's about LGBTQ rights, it, but it's also about how the government itself functions. Like they heard a case, the Supreme Court heard a case a couple weeks ago, about whether or not the EPA has the authority to regulate clean air laws. And the answer, the Supreme Court is probably going to say, no, they don't. Like that's, I just want people to wrap their minds around that, that what they're trying to do is to make it impossible for the government to function yeah, so that it will fail. And they don't want people to be able to vote, certain people to be able to vote, to fix things. That's how they want it to go because they want their little group of white, conservative, wealthy men to control everything. And so Democrats have an opportunity now to say, yes, adding seats to the Supreme Court is a drastic step, but it's not unheard of. It's happened in the past. The Supreme Court's been lots of different sizes. What hasn't happened in the past in this country is that the Supreme Court, say, (laughs) overturns otherwise valid election results. You know, we've got four, at least three or four votes on the Supreme Court right now that support this idea of the independent state legislature, that a state legislature can just say, well, Joe Biden technically won, but we're going to give our electoral votes to Trump instead. Yeah. And we've got three or four people in the Supreme Court right now that think that that is fine. Yeah. So yes, it's we've got a uphill battle, but there truly is no other way <laughs> to save our democracy than to add seats to the Supreme Court because these people are out here to destroy it. And I... And not overstate, that's not hyperbole. 
Sorry, I believe you. You know, and one path, <laughs> one path to do that, I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, is through the Senate because the bill's been introduced. Mm-hmm. It has more support, but if it can't get through the Senate, right? Joe Manchin, mm-hmm. of course. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Joe, Joe Manchin, of course. I mean, I think that November expanding our majorities in the Senate absolutely could could mean fixing the Supreme Court, which could mean shoring up democracy. You know, That's- small D. Uh, am exactly I wrong, right? right or? No, that's exactly right. That we really, well, there's, look, there's a lot of great organizing going on in West Virginia, and I don't want to, um, I don't want to speak negatively about that. But in the short term, we really just need to make Joe Manchin um, kind of irrelevant. He has a lot of power right now, and he's sinking, not, uh, you know, other executive branch nominees. He's blocking legislation from moving forward. He and Kirsten Cinema single-handedly blocked what would have been, you know, the most transformative democracy bill passed since the Voting Rights Act. You know, so what we need is better Democrats in the Senate who will do what is needed to expand access to democracy. Then once we get that stuff passed, you have to fix the Supreme Court so that we can keep the progress that we made, because the Supreme Court has already gutted the Voting Rights Act twice. You know, just keep giving them chances to gut it. They're going to keep taking them. So I think, you know, unfortunately, the way Congress works is that they don't want to react until something bad happens. My take is that many, many bad things have happened as a result of the Supreme Court's decisions. But I think something really bad is going to happen in June. And I think at that point, a lot of Democrats will get the courage to support court expansion. Well, let's hope. Yeah. Well, so the the hearings start next week, I believe. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so let's uh, cross our fingers. Yes, and next week is going to be very exciting. It's for once something exciting and good is happening in the Senate. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, Megan Hatcher Mays, thank you so much for joining me again. If you join me again, hopefully I will have that prize we talked about. (laughs) Looking forward. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks.